Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Welcome, everybody, to Our Dirty Laundry. It's Mandy. And it's Katie. This is a podcast where we, as white women, learn about the shittiness of white women past and present um, and all sorts of other interlocking oppressions and bullshit. Um, We promise that we have, um, you know, a good time while we do it. I know that sounds messed up. We are grateful to be learning about what we're learning about. We're two childhood friends that love catching up and talking to each other. And I think really um, appreciate learning everything we're learning and then not just learning it, but doing something with it, taking action with our knowledge, including sharing it in this podcast. So we're glad you're here. We know the last few weeks, um, we haven't been as consistent as we usually have been. Remember that we used to have minisodes like, Oh gosh, minisodes and an episode every week. And now look what happened to us. Look at us now. (laughs) I I do think we'll get back into the swing of things. Although I keep saying that and then it's just like more keeps piling up. Um, but we are recording this on May 25th. And of course, yesterday was a terrible mass shooting at an elementary school in Texas. And it, I don't even know. Like, I am so sad and heartbroken for parents when I look at my own kids last night and put them to bed and just cannot even begin to imagine what that is like. I'm angry that. I just have such little faith that anything is going to change. Uh, You know, it's just, it's just so sad. And I was touching base with a lot of my friends who are teachers in schools today, just appreciating that they went to school today Mm -hmm. to work and that, and I know there are calls for teacher strikes, which I actually could get behind, but it's like to think of what we're expecting kids and teachers to go through right now is so terrible. And the, the literal and figurative attacks that they are under that are just increasing all the time. It's just so unsustainable and so unfair and so awful. So I, I swear we are not always like, you know, focused on the sad worst things or just doom and gloom, but this is a really sad, heavy day. And I just, my heart goes out to anyone listening who is connected to what happened, who is working in schools. It's just a terrible terrible, terrible, terribleness. I just don't even know. What, what it's do you think? Overwhelmed. I mean, I'm just, I feel overwhelmed by all of it to the point of just being just de- almost defeated. Because it does seem like after Sandy, we did nothing after Sandy Hook. We've done nothing after everything. We've decided that letting our children get murdered is a price we're willing to pay for people to be able to own guns in this country. And it's fucking ludicrous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whenever these things happen, then people come out on both sides. But it seems to come from the right a lot where they're like, don't make this political. Motherfuckers, you made it political. Mm -hmm. Like, it shouldn't be political. It should never be political that we need to protect our children and keep them from getting murdered. But the politicization of it is a fact. It's just how we live. We have a Congress that will not pass laws in order to make our children safer. That is 
the reality that we live under. And we have that Congress because people keep voting those people into their positions. So if you would like background checks to happen at a minimum Mm -hmm. or think that there should be more restrictions on gun laws, then quit fucking voting for these people who won't pass those things. Mm -hmm. Just that's the only way that this gets fixed. You can't let Mm -hmm. these people still be in power when they're just in the pockets of the NRA. It's maddening. I mean, it literally, I was just saying before we started recording makes me want to move out of this country. Like I go back and forth all of the time between wanting to be part of like, reformation or revolution or change Mm -hmm. and just throwing my hands up and being like, fuck it, I'm leaving. I know. And then of course, like all the privilege, the privilege to leave. Exactly. Which is absolutely a thing too. Yep. Um, yeah, it is awful. And then of course, it's not just Texas, but thinking about all of the legislation and, and things that are happening in Texas and the ways that kids and families are just increasingly unsafe under the guise of making them safer, you know, saying like, we're protecting children by not letting trans kids transition or like not supporting that or we're, you know, protecting protecting children by not letting them learn about history. Right. That might make them feel bad. We don't want them to feel bad, but we'll let them get shot. Protecting kids by banning abortion. I mean, it's just all like it. it, Yeah. It's, it's infuriating and disorienting and awful. And yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, so that's the context in which we are recording today. <laughs> Although I honestly can't think of a single day in the last two weeks that would have been like a great day to record where we would have been like, hi, how are you? Great. Nothing terrible. <laughs> I guess everything's wonderful. That is just not how. <laughs> not what's going on these unfold. days. Um, no. All right. So today um, we are going to talk about, we have been talking about various iterations of white feminism and history, the history of the feminist movement, and not just the history of it, but also the historiography of it, like how the stories about it get told and how that centers white women, races, women of color, um, including like, you know, it centers straight, cis, white women, um, etc. So settler women, etc. So we that same pattern is going to hold for this, that there's like the history that I want to try to share, but also really interesting scholarship about the history of the history, like how Mm -hmm. these stories get remembered and the politics of that and what that means um, for anti-racist work. So riot girls, tell me what you know about riot girls. Literally, I think nothing, (laughs) probably. I have heard the term. That's that's Could all. Could you like describe <laughs> one if you were to see one? On I mean, it just makes me think of like punk rock. I don't even know if that's right. That is but right. more like the yeah. punk music scene. Like mm-hmm. it's a girl power kind of a thing, but like an angry way, which is really my favorite <laughs> emotion, as we know. <laughs> emotion. Um, yeah, I don't know if I told you this, but good friends of ours when they got married, the the best man was giving a speech and was like, it's really hard for me to see my brother as anything but his two emotions, angry and hungry. (laughs) 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 in love and happy. And I don't know what to do with that. Um, (laughs) Yes, it is very much like anger is a part of this, the riot girl scene for sure. Um, When I was doing this research, I was having such 
nostalgia is probably not the right word for it, but like so many memories were flooding back from like my junior high years because we're talking like early nineties. And so you and I were in junior high together in the early nineties. And so, so much of this is like, Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Or like, Oh, I remember like hearing about that or thinking that was cool or whatever. So we're going to go back into the nineties and I have for you, I have sent you an email. Do you have, oh, okay. Email okay. Access. Right there? Mm-hmm. Um, there is in 1991, um, gets published in a zine. Zines are a big part of the riot girl scene. And we will talk about that a little bit more, but in, um, bikini kill zine number two gets published the riot girl manifesto and girl is mm-hmm. like, Girl, G-R-R-R-L. I think there's three R's. Maybe there's more, depending on how angry you are that day. I don't know. <laughs> um, okay, so what I thought we could do is just like alternate reading the lines of this manifesto. Sure. Are you, okay? Are you ready? Yeah, sounds good. Mm-hmm. You want to go first? Sure. Okay. Because us girls crave records and books and fanzines that speak to us that we feel included in and can understand in our own ways. Because we want to make it easier for girls to see, hear each other's work so that we can share strategies and criticize, applaud each other. Because we must take over the means of production in order to create our own meanings. Because viewing our work as being connected to our girlfriends, politics, real lives is essential if we're going to figure out how we are, how we are doing impacts, reflects, perpetuates, or disrupts the status quo. Because we recognize fantasies of instant macho gun revolution as impractical lies meant to keep us simply dreaming instead of becoming our dreams, and thus seek to create revolution in our own lives every single day by envisioning and creating alternatives to the bullshit Christian capitalist way of doing things. I thought you'd like that yeah, line. I do like that line. <laughs> <laughs> because we want to need to encourage and be encouraged in the face of all our own insecurities, in the face of beer gut boy rock, all one word, <laughs> that tells us we can't play our instruments, in the face of authorities who say our bands, zines, et cetera, are the worst in the U.S. And because we don't want to assimilate to someone else's, parentheses, boy, standards of what is or isn't. Because we are unwilling to falter under claims that we are reactionary reverse sexists and not the true punk rock soul crusaders that we know we really are. There's lots of like capitalization going on here too. (laughs) Because we know that life is much more than physical survival and are patently aware that the punk rock you can do anything idea is crucial to becoming to the coming angry girl rock revolution, which seeks to save the psychic and cultural lives of girls and women everywhere, according to their own terms, not ours. Because we are interested in creating non-hierarchical ways of being and making music friends and scenes based on communication plus understanding instead of competition plus good-bad categorizations. Because doing, reading, seeing, hearing cool things that validate and challenge us can help us gain the strength and sense of community that we need in order to figure out how bullshit like racism, able-bodyism, ageism, speciesism, classism, thinism, sexism, anti-Semitism, and heterosexism figures in our own lives. Because we see fostering and supporting girl scenes and girl artists of all kinds is integral to this process. Because we hate capitalism in all its forms and see our main goal as sharing information and staying alive instead of making profits off being cool according to traditional standards. Because we are angry at a society that tells us girl equals dumb, girl equals bad, girl equals weak. 
because we are unwilling to let our real and valid anger be diffused and or turned against us via the internalization of sexism as witnessed in girl-girl jealousism and self-defeating girl-type behaviors. Because I believe with my whole heart, mind, body, all one word, that girls constitute a revolutionary soul force that can and will change the world for real. Okay. Thoughts about the manifesto? I mean, my thoughts about this are one that I love it and I'm <laughs> like sad that I've never heard it, but two, mm-hmm. also like sad that this is what now like 30 plus years old mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. feels like what progress have we made? I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, yeah. Again. It's funny you say that because there's actually, I, I think we'll get to this today. There's like a resurgence of Riot Girl, like like girls in their tweens, teens, early 20s right now are like, there's kind of like a revival of the Riot Girl scene that um, is really fascinating. And I think partly it's because of that, like this, this continued anger and frustration. Um, yeah, there's some of it that also seems like really... Um, maybe ahead of its time is yeah. the wrong way to say it, but talking about like speciesism, thinism, mm-hmm. um, you know, d- making those connections um, seems like a pretty early time to do that. Although of course it all depends on like who you're, what conversations you're listening to and what conversations you aren't. Um, other things that stood out to you for better or for worse? Um, I mean, the Lots anti-capitalism stuff is always yep. my favorite for sure. <laughs> Uh, I mean, they do mention um, heterosexism in here, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. there's still a lot of like, you wonder how much has been considered um, of the trans community in some of the language. Totally. Yeah. And that's actually um, one of the founding members of this movement that we'll talk about um, was performing at this like women's festival, women's music festival that was... um, pretty transphobic. And she has since that's, this is Kathleen Hanna has come out very supportive of trans women. And so there's, there's definitely some of that, I think in the initial ones, any like, um, concerns or spaces that you see, like, Ooh, there could be some like seeping in of some stuff or some questions at all. Maybe not. I don't want to ask um, a leading question like that. No. I, yeah, I'm sure because we come out this looking at this as privileged white mm-hmm. able-bodied cisgendered people it mm-hmm. it probably would take some more reading and thinking about it to even recognize that because i think our first mm-hmm. mindset is not to see that stuff um when you're not part of those groups so well and you know always with with primary sources, I'm a former history teacher, you know, putting it into context to understand like, what was this in conversation with? What was this in response to? But your first reaction, like how I'm sad. I've never heard of this. That's the reaction I had too. When I read it, Mm -hmm. like, wow, I wish I, I wish when I was 11, I would have known that this was out there. I think Mm -hmm. I would have been, you know, really fired up about it. Although, you know, I would have (laughs) (laughs) for sure would have I would have started coming to school dressed in all black. (laughs) So you, you were right that this is um, this manifesto that in part launches what's known as the riot girl movement, or it's, you know, of course, whenever you say like this thing started this, it's more complicated than that. But this was part of like the early days was this manifesto. And it is definitely um, in response to these, 
um, girls that were part that really enjoyed punk music and were part of this punk scene, but were really frustrated with the misogyny that was in it um, and, and really angry about that. And then also um, they're, they're born in like the late sixties, early seventies. And so they're coming of age at this time where there are lots of conversations in, you know, mainstream media, even about women's rights feminism, et cetera. And so it's just this sort of potent mix. And I honestly, this is where I clearly show myself like there's music and I like it (laughs) and I will listen to music, but I'm not Mm -hmm. like, even my very favorite songs, I don't know all the words to, I couldn't totally tell you who sings them. I don't know. I just know I like that song. Right. Yeah. I'm the last person who should be giving any background about the genres of music. And I know there's, I know enough to know, I know very little, almost nothing, but punk music, um, is this like offshoot of rock from, I don't like the sixties and the early seventies that is marked by like really short, fast paced songs, like, you know, just like, I don't know. That's But what's funny is my daughter is obsessed with Joan Jett and all she wants to do is listen to, to Joan Jett and play drums with two pens, like on her car seat in the back. And so I feel like in my head, all I have is like cherry bomb and like, bad reputation and mm-hmm. I love rock and roll. Like, I, you know, she, she actually isn't necessarily a part of this, but it's that same kind of energy and vibe. Like, mm-hmm. and I don't really know why she's not considered part of it. Cause she was like 16 or even younger when she started their band. And, um, it was like a lot of the ethos of her group was very similar to this. So Anyway, I feel like lately I've been listening to a lot of like, Linda Linda's is this group that I'll talk about at the end of like this kind of resurgence. Um, and the, my daughter really loves them too. I mean, she's just into it. So anyway, it's, um, like a lot of like yelling, singing Mm -hmm. and very stripped down. And a lot of the lyrics are like very political, Mm -hmm. like anti oppressed oppression, anti-establishment kinds of like shout songs, you know, which yeah. makes it funny to me that my five-year-old's like, I feel this in my soul. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny to me too, that I feel a lot of those emotions, but I have never <laughs> liked punk music. I <laughs> like, I just don't, it's not my genre. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I love the message. I'd like to hear it in a different form. <laughs> yes. There's just a lot of screaming. So, yeah. and you know, maybe I just need to like embrace it. I'm not sure. Oh, just cause I'm old. I don't know. Maybe. I like it to we be are. quiet. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people who are part of this movement are like a half step away from us generationally. So maybe we're just like square. I think that's, we are. Possible. That's true. Um, I find that's fine. <laughs> um, so it's, there's also this like DIY-ness to punk, like self-taught, um, Mm. Like it just, yeah, like DOA is probably the best with self-produced, you know, that they're indie labels at best, if not like mm. just themselves producing their it, basement so. at home. Yeah. Yeah. Very much like garage basement sort of yep. music. Um, Detroit was a center of it. New York was the center of it. London was the center of it. There's um, yeah, just, this is kind of this scene. So um, in Washington, D.C. and Olympia, Washington, so Washington, the state, and then Washington, D.C., the city mm-hmm. or the territory, actually, if we want to get technical, mm-hmm. um, that's where there were girls that were into punk that started to, like, 
pushback on this. And the in the kind of conventional telling of this story, there are two bands that get uh, named Bratmobile, which is Alison Wolf, Molly Newman, and Jen Smith, and Bikini Kill, which is Kathleen Hanna, Kathy Wilcox, Toby Vale, and Billy Karen, who's actually a dude, a white dude that was um, guitarist in the band. And if you remember, Kate Schatz was on a while back and she was mm-hmm. talking about Kathleen Hanna and how inspired she was. And, you know, and I think there's yep. a lot here that is definitely inspiring for sure. Um, so it's this, so, so like early nineties, there's just a few things that are happening. So one part of it is this, there's, um, in Washington, DC, there's this neighborhood called Mount Pleasant, which is actually very, very close to where I lived in DC. But when I lived there demographically, this was a radically different neighborhood Mm -hmm. than in the early nineties. It was super, super, diverse, um, lots of different communities of color, uh, and lots of new immigrants from Central America. And there was a black woman police officer who shot and killed a Salvadoran man. And it led to these riots um, that led to like a lot of young people coming out in the streets and like hundreds of young people and the city imposed a curfew. And it was like this really intense moment um, now that neighborhood is like super bougie, like mm-hmm. majority white people living there. Um, but at the time it was, um, this, like the name for this episode was the Mount Pleasant race riots. Mm-hmm. And so the, the young girls that were in, or the teenage girls that were in DC at the time this happened, they're reading about it in the news and it made them think like, we need a girl revolution. Like it was these young people in the street fighting racism and oppression. Um, and they were thinking about it in terms of their experiences as girls. And we'll get into this um, a little bit more, but that is happening in the spring of 1991. So then this, the band um, Bratmobile and Bikini Kill are started. They put together this zine. Have you ever seen a zine? Do you know what I mean? So why is it different than a magazine? What's the, it's, I mean, from what I can tell, it's like handmade and like a collage kind of a, deal Mm. like it's much more like a punk rock aesthetic and it's um anti-establishment and really like taking aim at what often magazines especially magazines for girls are trying to do which is like sell you stuff stuff. and make you think you're not pretty enough and this Mm -hmm. is like fuck you in like a paper form with a binding you know okay so it they a lot of them were like diy printed in like like mimeograph machines mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that smelled weird um, or copy machines. And then, or even like handmade, every single one would be handmade mm-hmm. and they'd be passed out at concerts or like you could get them mailed to you, but it was this um, like those zines. And so that's where this manifesto gets published. Um, and they, so, so all of these things are kind of in the mix in 1991. There's also an international pop underground convention in Olympia, Washington that had this concert of female led bands that include, included Bikini Kill and Bratmobile and a couple of other bands. So all of these things are, are happening at the same time. And they're, they're really, it's these girl musicians and maybe that isn't even their primary way they describe themselves. I'm not sure, but they're involved in the punk scene and they're, super upset about what's happening in that scene. Um, and the bands, a lot of the the music that they're singing with the lyrics that they're singing about have to do with topics that were typically considered really taboo, like rape, um, sex, mm-hmm. eating disorders, incest, like sexual abuse, like all, you know, this 
these things that they were experiencing that they felt like weren't being represented anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, Bikini Kill has a song that probably their most famous song is Rebel Girl, which is um, really emphasizing friendships. It's like uh, this girl who's singing it is like this sees this girl in town in their neighborhood who's just like super cool and basically like telling people to fuck off. She's like, you're my queen. I love you. Like wanting to bond with a girl that isn't willing to go along with everything else. Mm. Okay. So um, I mentioned that there were these two bands. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about the the girls. I keep saying girls and I honestly don't even know if that's like pejorative or not. But yeah. The people who were involved, um, they're all born in like the late 60s, early 70s. So Allison Wolf, um, she had a lesbian feminist mother who started the first women's health clinic in Olympia, Washington, which to me is just like the perfect, yeah. like, of course your daughter would go on to found this, you know? Yeah. Um, she had this fanzine called Girl Germs, um, was part of the band. Bratmobile goes on to like be in lots of other bands. She's still around, um, involved in music. And I think is like a journalist. She's got a podcast, like almost all these people are still alive and like not that old, honestly. Molly Newman was born in 1972. Um, she was also part of Bratmobile originally from the DC area, also part of bands like the Frumpies and the Peaches. I just love all these mm-hmm. names. Um, also involved in zines. Um, she actually interned for Arizona representative Mo Udall. Udall. Do you remember this mm. name? Udall. He was mm-hmm. apparently like a contender for president um, when Jimmy Carter was elected, but she used the copy machine in his offices to print off a bunch of these mm. zines, which I just think is like a brilliant <laughs> image. Um, Jen Smith was part of it. She, there's, I couldn't find very much about her. Um, Kathy Wilcox was part of uh, bikini kill. She was born in 1969, went to Evergreen state college, which I think of as like, maybe this is wrong, but I think of it as like a super progressive white school. Maybe that's not the way to think about it, but, um, she met Toby Vale there. They worked together at a sandwich shop. Toby Vale was also part of bikini kill born in 1969 in Washington. Her family members were drummers and she, and like seemed like very progressive people. Um, she grew up in Olympia and then um, lived in Eugene. Again, I'm just thinking yeah, of like, all of these hippie you know, liberal kind of places. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then was a, a DJ at the radio station um, at Evergreen State College and was just like really into music. And then Kathleen Hanna is probably the most famous um, member of these groups and like the kind of the name that gets banded about when you read about the Riot Girl movement. She was born in 1968 in Portland. Um, what I also couldn't help but thinking about, have you seen that show Portlandia? No, but I've heard of it. So one of the stars of it, it's Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein and Carrie Brownstein was actually part of this movement too, that she was Mm. like, you know, in some of these bands and part like Sleater Kinney is one of her musical projects. And so there is this very like Pacific Northwest-ness to it that Mm -hmm. I think is important to keep in mind, like a particular kind of like progressive white person. Yep vibe. So, um, so Kathleen Hanna was born in, um, Portland, but her family moved out to Maryland. So this is part of that, like DC Washington state connection. And when she was really little, like a little kid, her mom took her to a rally in DC where Gloria Steinem was speaking. And her mom was kind of this like secret feminist in the house who she was a housewife and, want like was going to these consciousness raising groups that we've learned about before, but her 
the dad was not into it. And I think her parents ended up getting divorced, but for Kathleen, this was like this really important early moment as a child that she went to this feminist solidarity event and like saw these women yelling and like really got into it. Her mom, um, had Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. So honestly, mm-hmm. when I was reading through, I was like, oh, so much of this makes sense of the, this like feminist current that they were exposed to through their moms mm-hmm. was a particular part of the feminist current that we've learned about as being problematic in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so her parents get divorced. They She moves to Oregon and then Washington. She also goes to Evergreen State College in the late 80s. She worked as a stripper to pay for her tuition. Um, she starts getting involved in like art and music and a lot of her exhibits had to do with sexism and violence against women, um, domestic violence in particular, and was just all like always really political, was doing spoken word kinds of events, um, was writing and then put together these bands. She's also, uh, it, part of the band La Tigre, which is also mm-hmm. kind of famous. You may have heard about it, mm-hmm. heard about it in the early nineties also, um, Bikini Gill, this is a connection that I thought, oh my God, it's again, like to your point, none of this has changed. Like it all feels like we're stuck in the same historic moment, but there was a pro-choice rally at the mall right before the, the national mall in DC, right before the Planned Parenthood versus Casey trial hmm. and Bikini Kill performed there. Hannah herself had had an abortion when she was 15. And so it, it's like kind of all wrapped up in this, like that, those feminist issues and that stream of feminism. Fun fact, she's married to Adam Horowitz from the Beastie Boys, which I did not know that. Okay. So when we think um, this this comes from a 1992 Newsweek article that covered Riot Girl, which I actually thought was kind of amazing, like pre-internet that these like teenage girl, early 20s girls had this like zine thing that they started in music that they started and it's getting covered in Newsweek. And here's a quote from the article. All girls get harassed. Most learn during adolescence to ignore it, hoping it will end, which to me is like two of the most depressing things <laughs> yeah. that have ever been written. Um, but Hopper has an outlet for her frustration. This is a, a girl they're covering. She's a riot girl, part of a support network of activist, quote, girls from 14 to 25 who were loosely linked together by a few punk bands, weekly discussion groups, pen pal friendships, and more than 50 homemade fanzines. The riot girls are a new feminist voice for the video age generation, inflamed not so much by economic issues as by social ones, incest, child abuse, abortion, eating disorders, harassment, patching together wildly mixed ideas from Madonna, Sassy Magazine, and feminist critics like Susan and Faludi and Naomi Wolf, they've set out to make the world safe for their kind of girlhood, sexy, assertive, and loud. There's no telling whether this enthusiasm for the Riot Girl's catchy passion for revolution and girl style will evaporate when it hits the adult real world. Like it's such a patronizing article. But <laughs> most of the girls are still in the shelters of home or college, a far cry from what they'll face in the competitive job market or as they start to just form their you wait until you grow up. <laughs> I know. It's so annoying. I mean, it's just it's pretty gross. But also you can already see what some of the problems are going to be. Like yeah sexy assertive and loud and like claiming that as like their right to be like the whiteness that's built into that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, I think like, Ooh, that we're, we're sensitive to that given what we've been learning. So there are these elements of, of riot girl that are defining of the movement, I guess. So there's the, the music, like the lyrics and the punk style music, there's an aesthetic of what they wear. And so some of this, um, that they would 
um, this comes from an article by Charlotte Briggs that we'll link to in the show notes, but it talks about um, that Bikini Kill had a penchant for dressing up like anarchist schoolgirls, pairing plaid Catholic school kilts, knee socks, page boy haircuts, pigtails, barrettes, and baby tees with ripped stockings and combat boots was not meant to fetishize their music, quite the opposite. The band members wanted to use their clothing choices to highlight confusing and frustrating aspects of growing up as a girl. And so there's like a, like this kind of like playing with fetishizing, but trying to control it. Um, some of the band members would write, they'd have like a exposed midriff and they would write slut or rape or whore in Sharpie on their mm-hmm. stomachs. Um, so that was kind of like the aesthetic. Um, but this other author whose article I really, really appreciated, and we'll link to it in the show notes as well, Mimi T. Nguyen, talks about how women of color in the movement wondered out loud for whom writing slut across their stomachs operated as reclamations of sexual agency against feminine passivities, where racisms had already inscribed such terms onto some bodies, and poor or criminal class women argued that feminist slumming in the sex industry through stripping for the most part as a confrontational act and played that other women in this or other tiers of the industry were otherwise conceding to patriarchy. Um, So there was this idea that like riot girls in a lot of the way it was constructed was like a middle-class white girl movement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also the, the, okay. So there's the lyrics and the music, there's the, the aesthetics and the style. And some of the criticism of the riot girls was that some of the band members would come out and like really slam um, girls who didn't dress like this, or they would take issue with um, people like girls who weren't willing to go along with it as like conceding to the patriarchy <clears throat> in contrast mm-hmm. with the manifesto. That's like, we are here for the sisterhood. Um, they're also at a lot of the concerts, how the concerts played out, is uh, is important too that they would have like pass the mic moments where women that came to the shows would share their stories of sexual abuse so it was like a kind of like a consciousness raising confessional kind of activity or they would call up the girls in the audience to come and stand in the front and get to be in control of the mosh pit and like have it be like a safer space um and then of course these zines for sure oh with the style i had (laughs) this was great that um, this is Generation X, of course, that's involved in this movement, and that this their quote uniform was intended to be really different than their mother's feminism, which was Birkenstocks, turquoise jewelry, and long hair. <laughs> <laughs> which again is so white, lady. It you is, know? yes. <laughs> um, yes. Okay, and then there is some like in everything that I was reading about. There's even in the more mainstream dominant narratives describing the riot girls, there is some acknowledgement of like, well, you know, some of these white women and like in the manifesto, they they're trying to deal with racism in some way. So they knew that they were being critiqued for being white and middle-class and, and some of the songs directly address that. So for instance, um, one of the, I think this is a Bratmobile song, Polaroid baby. One of the lyrics says we're so white and we're so cute. Um, as like a critique of whiteness being equated with desirability. Um, There's another band called heavens to Betsy and there's a song, white girl, white girl. I want to change the world, but I can't change anything until I change my racist self. And so there's some kind of like acknowledgement. And to be honest, even in some of the histories I read, like applause for them, like, aren't they great white women who were trying to incorporate this into their movement um, but was there any inclusion of women of color? Great. In any of these groups? I 
feel like I just paid you to segue that. Yes. <laughs> um, yes, obviously, of course. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so this um, scholar who's writing a lot about it, when who I love, this was in a journal of feminist theory, um, is is raising all these questions and is specifically talking about the the history of the history. And so she says, I argue that how the critiques of women of color are narrated is important to how we remember feminisms and how we produce feminist futures. So she goes through this whole dominant narrative and like breaks it down, even back to this, the initial founding that's like, oh, these girls were upset with the punk scene. They were inspired by this race riot at Mount Pleasant and, you know, came together to say, we need a revolution like that, a girl revolution. So she's like, okay, well, let's ask a question about that. She says, because the Mount Pleasant riots erupted around immigration, race, and police brutality, what does imagining a girl riot entail, especially where these concerns did not often surface? So what does it mean for a group of like white middle-class girls to be inspired by youth rioting against police brutality and xenophobia and racism? Mm-hmm. Did that be inspired to have like a girl power revolution? Like, what does that mean? Um, so... Yeah, there's also in the early days, there would be these workshops um, or like conventions almost. Um, So this is also from this um, from Wynn's article in a journal of feminist theory that there was this in the movement, a quote, hoped for collectivity, knocking the promise of girl love and punk rock revolution askew. So like they might have expressed a hope for this and like an awareness of it, but that does not necessarily translate into anything else. And to Mm -hmm. be honest, this reading these histories in this article in particular was definitely a huge, like hold up the mirror to myself moment, like Mm -hmm. the confessional or being aware of things and like talking about them, but not like, so what, like what comes of that yep. being so important. So they, um, in this article, she talks about this, the first riot girl convention that was held in DC in the early nineties, that, um, there's this racism workshop that was being run by an older African-American woman who was not herself a riot girl, but was, you know, hosting this like anti-racism workshop and that the young white women were clearly uncomfortable with being confronted with complicity in whiteness. So in the article, she says in her history of riot girl called girls to the front, Sarah Marcus describes the scene in retrospect. This conversation called for a serious switching of gears. The girls had just spent the morning talking about and connecting based on the shared ways they were disadvantaged and put down. Now the white girls, which meant a majority of the people there were being told that they were oppressors as well. The anti-racism workshop at the Bay Area Girls Convention, this is like a few years later in the late 90s, was similarly similarly disturbing, but the reverberations echoed also throughout the event. As detailed in Bianca Ortiz's Mamacita, the Mexican girls found themselves in the kitchen cooking for the other participants during the vegan workshop. So let's just sit with that for a second. She says, they were busy with the revolution while we fried tortillas until the grease from the pan stuck to the grease on our faces while our backs stiffened up and the hours passed while we were so confused and disturbed with what was happening that the only thing we could do was laugh and try not to think about it. And Celia Perez, in an issue of I Dreamed I Was Assertive, recounts a conflict on a zinester's message board online during which some young women sought to recuperate white pride apart from racial supremacy. And then Wynn says, is it any wonder then that Lauren Jade Martin wrote in You Might As Well Live... And yeah, some of you say we are out to kill white boy mentality, but have you examined your own mentality, your white upper middle class girl mentality? What would you say if I said that I wanted to kill that mentality too? Would you say, what about sisterhood? How does all of that happen in the first place? Like what was missed? What were people not thinking about? Like what? 
you know, I mean, just all the same stuff that we always do when we're coming up with these great ideas for conventions and, you know, consensus building and whatever, but leave out other groups and do such horrendous things in the midst of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and there was um, in Wynn's article, there's a lot of talk about the ways that riot girls framed their transgression as like absolution of their complicity with whiteness. Mm-hmm. Like I'm dying my hair blue. So now I don't fit in society either. Mm-hmm. Like Making now yourself, I'm like you. Yeah, it's mm-hmm, like, well, that's mm-hmm. completely no. fucking different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but these, there's just two parts that I really wanted to read because I, I read them and I had to put the article down and like really sit and think, Oh my God, this is, I, I have to wrestle with this myself. So in it, she's talking about how this, like these confessional lyrics and like acknowledging these things in a particular way actually continue to do harm. So uh, Wynn says, therefore, establishing the intimate as a preferred and privileged mode might mirror the forms of surveillance that required some persons, persons of color, for instance, to reveal themselves, to bear the burden of representation like you are here as an example, Mm -hmm. and the weight of pedagogy, like, oh, teach us about your people and your Mm -hmm. oppressions. Um, In the Zine Mamacita, Bianca Ortiz criticized the violence of intimacy as a salve to racism, citing her feeling of time and emotional labor wasted, writing personal letters to a million white girls, especially where women of color critics, such as herself, are relegated, relegated to the role of educator, which required their interventions to remain at the level of the personal, a framework that seemed to replicate the toothless multiculturalism of dominant cultures or in their critiques be labeled the enemy for violating the comfort of others. Mm. As Bianca says, I'm sick of being the example, the teacher, the scapegoat, the leader, the half Mexican girl in the group of allies who either attempt to praise me or destroy me or both at once. Mm-hmm. Um, this last section here, she says, Wynn says, Riot Girl drew from liberal formulas that define racism as ignorance and ignorance as the absence of intimacy. In the words of Azine, I admittedly have long discarded, quote, racism is a lack of love. We also know this in the familiar disavowal. I'm not racist. I have black friends, Mm -hmm. which suggests that proximity is a social prophylactic against virulent racism. We love that. And like, Mm -hmm. need to sit with that for a while. In the name of a transformative love, white girls and some boys confessed to failures of social bonds, admitting a lack of non-white friends was popular and proposed solutions through which racism might be overcome through experiences that would then yield intimate knowledge of the other. The presumption is that intimacy is a pathway to a good relationship, is the passage to social justice. Thus, it must be, it may be that the expression of shame is less about the thing one is ashamed for, the failure to be intimate with racial colonial others, for instance, than a hope for recognition that others might witness one's shame as proof of good faith. Hmm. So this yeah. is making me think about, you said this the other day when we recorded, like, yes, it, I think we were talking about Ginny Thomas and it's like easy and even kind of like cathartic to be like, fuck you, you know, mm-hmm. but that the harder thing, the more important thing to do is to look at whatever politics you call it, left, progressive, liberal, like whatever name you have for it, like people who say they want to be engaged in anti-racism, especially white people, that there is still just so much ugliness and grossness that can come in that. And this idea that like the solution to racism is intimate bonds that demand 
that people of color like make themselves vulnerable in mm-hmm. some ways need to be in relationship to us as white people. And like, that's how we'll conquer it. That just the, the ways that that still puts people of color so much at risk and yeah. is about like consumption and control. Yeah. And that you, the thought that you have to have some sort of intimate connection to someone to recognize their humanity is just <laughs> such a fucked up thing too. Like it's the whole, uh, problem with, not getting involved in something until it affects you. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I don't really saying stuff like I, I don't really get involved in LGBTQ issues because I don't know anybody who is that. Or once your child comes out, now you're an advocate. Mm-hmm. Or once your someone in your family is affected by gun violence, now you're for gun control. Like, why does it mm-hmm. have to be intimate? Mm-hmm. for us to recognize that it's still a problem. I think that's a huge problem with every social issue that there is. It shouldn't take you knowing someone. It shouldn't take it affecting your life for you to care about it or to have a connection. Totally. And it it shouldn't take, and this is the part that I think I have to just wrestle with so much myself and be really brutally honest with myself about how this lives in me. The desire to be a good person mm-hmm. is what motivates it. Mm-hmm. Like, versus the desire for justice, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or humanity. So Sarah Ahmed, who I know we've talked about um, her writing before, is quoted in Wynn's piece saying, indeed, anti-racism may even provide the conditions for a new discourse of white pride. Here, anti-racism becomes a matter of generating a positive white identity, an identity that makes the white subject feel good. The declaration of such an identity sustains the narcissism of whiteness and allows white subjects to feel good by feeling good about their Mm anti-racism. And this applying to this riot girl scene, like we're trying to fuck things up and we care about racism Mm -hmm. and then just like not seeing the ways that all of this is playing out, you know, that in, that it's, I mean, I don't know. It's not like we need to even compare these necessarily, but it's, it's so insidious. It feels like worse in some ways than an open, unabashed bigot, you know, but for a white person to say like, I need you to absolve me. Like I need to be a good white person and you need to know that I'm anti-racist and like, I need to be involved in these confessionals or like say all the right things like this performativeness Mm -hmm. of it, Mm -hmm. um, is bonkers. There's one example that when gives in, um, I think this is in Wynn's article, but um, Erica Reinstein was one of the early zine makers in the 1990s. And she actually founded this, co-founded this website called zinewiki.com, where you can look at all of the old, or not all, but many, many of these old zines um, that are now archived. And they actually have a library at one of the universities in New York where a lot of these are stored. Mm-hmm. And then a press called Riot Girl Press. And and she would be writing about this and she um, is white. Um, and she would say, I think growing up around people of different cultures, religions, and races has helped demystify the whole issue of racism in my mind. Plus, my cultural experiences growing up were not typically white, especially compared to my more middle class friends. And then so it's this idea like I'm a good white person, I'm different than these other white people, mm-hmm. and like I couldn't possibly be caught up in this. Then in one of the zines, um, she talks about having a possible Ethiopian ancestor and then draws upon the one drop rule. Oh, Lord. To identify herself as a black woman. Oh, no. Uh-huh. So there's <laughs> even like some Dolezal vibes here, for sure. Uh-huh. And, then, um, and then she talks about her partner saying, Justin and I just got married and we decided to take on each other's racial identities as part of that commitment to each other. Mm. No. No. <laughs> and then apparently there's this big, like, 
like conflict. And I couldn't really understand who all the players was, but were, but she is also Jewish. And so then someone in the movement kind of like came at her and critiqued her for this. And then she's like, you're being anti-Semitic. And so then it just like spun out uh-huh. in weird ways. Okay. Uh-huh. So yes. Um, mm. However, I, I want to talk about your question. Like, so who are the women of color that actually mm-hmm. were? And this is part of Wynn's argument is like, maybe we just don't even tell the story the same way anymore. And that's a way to address these issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a musician and artist, Iraya Robles, who was interviewed with Akiko Carver for Girls to the Front, um, talked about how women of color were often called upon to respond to um, feminism rather to, to white feminism rather than remember what they built because lately there's been a big boon of documentaries and movies about the riot girls. And probably some Mm -hmm. of it is like, you know, retro, like 30 years ago, you know, like anniversary kinds of things Mm -hmm. and no white women love an anniversary. (laughs) Um, But there's been documentaries and movies like Amy Poehler had a movie come out recently where like her daughter realizes that her mom was a riot girl, like this stuff. So it's all kind of like in the ether. And so this, this particular woman is like, I'm super annoyed that when I get invited to these documentaries, I'm having to like respond to whiteness instead of just being able to talk about my own experience, which that mm-hmm. is a part of it. That's not like the only reason that my experience matters. Yep. So she says, for instance, in Sarah Marcus's Girls to the Front, for instance, unfortunately, every person of color appears to be a big bummer for Riot Girl. We are <laughs> continually narrated and approached, even in retrospect, like we're a scar or a painful memory for punk feminism. In that story, we ruined it. And there is so much more to our story than that. The question also remains, where's the work we made? With California being missing in the timeline, you just erased so many people. Where are the Los Angeles riot girls or the punk women of color in the Bay Area who did so much art and activism related to riot girl or queer core or which these movements benefited from? How come all the women of color who are making impactful zines and bands are left out? And so Wynn asks, what would this mean for riot girl retrospectives all of these retrospectives going on right now that quote, hold a place for women of color to say their piece, but in such a way that contains their critique and segregates it from the story of the movement's contribution. What if their critique was the contribution? Perhaps we should allow the intervention to become an interval in which we linger, not as a past that must be explained neatly or reproduced faithfully, but as a past that continually presses us to imagine a something else to be, um, which I think would be really awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a great article in Vice by Gabby Bess um, that talked a lot about the same kind of thing. Um, it's super accessible and like really beautifully written. Um, and so it's talking about the broader Riot Girl movement and the ways that, of course, there are women of color. And in particular, in this article, she's looking at Black women who were deeply embedded in this. And so she talks about Ramdasha Beacon, who was introduced to Riot Girl after an older friend of hers had moved to Washington, where all these other girls were, and became roommates with Toby Vale, who was one of the Bikini Kill mm-hmm. members. And they start mailing zines to to this girl back east on the East Coast. She was in the New Jersey sub- suburbs. She was already like super into the punk scene. Um, she said, I was into punk music and I wanted to start a band and they were doing all the things I wanted to do. They started to write me letters and it just evolved into pen pal friendships with people, which I think is like so awesome and yeah. beautiful. Then she was reading these zines, had these pen pals. She started her own zine when she was 15 called Gunk. Um, and was just like super fired up about this. But this um, journalist, Gabby Beast, talks about how 
quote, white kids in general, regardless if they're punk or not, can get away with having green mohawks and pierced lips because no matter how much they deviated from the norms of society, their whiteness always shows through. For instance, um, I'll go out somewhere with my friends who all look equally as weird as me, but say we get hassled by the cops for skating or something. That cop is going to remember my face a lot clearer than, say, one of my white girlfriends. I can just mm-hmm. hear him now. Yeah, there was this black girl with pink hair and two other girls. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually um, from the Kim's Dean. In a later passage, she's journaling about her experience at that first convention in DC. And at the time, even as a teenager, it was like, what in the fuck is this? So she remembers um, they had a workshop on racism and I heard it wasn't too effective, but really how could it have been if it was filled up with mostly all white girls? One girl I spoke to after the meeting said the Asian girls were blaming all the white girls for racism and she just couldn't handle that. Ever heard of the word guilt? The overall experience of the Riot Girl Convention showed me a lot of different things, and I'm sorry to say most of them were not very good ones. Don't get me wrong, I'm totally for Revolution Girl now, but maybe it just maybe it shouldn't just be limited to white middle class punk rock girls, because there's no denying that's what it is. Mm-hmm. In the moment, you know, these girls are pushing back against this. Mm-hmm. Um Tamar Kali Brown is another um, black woman who co-founded Sister Girl Riots, which were these like parties like just intense they sound amazing that were put on for and by black women who either had bands or were solo acts and they it involved um women like Honeychild coleman and maya glick this is in 1997 and when they threw this like particularly famous riot sister girl riot and they had this photo shoot and i'm going to send you a picture of the photo and i want you to tell me um how you like what you think about this now after hearing about this this history so this is a valentine's day riot and there's actually itself like a phone number it's not a cell phone obviously it's like in the 90s but i really want to call this number and see who would answer it today (laughs) oh you want me to describe what is happening in this picture sure sure yeah um so it's a white background with a big pink heart mm-hmm. um with the valentine's day riot above it and then there are four black women at least two of them are holding firearms i can't tell what the one in the back has yeah i think all, hand. well i think she's holding a machete and then oh, the other okay. two are guns and then there's one yeah. in the yeah yeah, mm-hmm. one in the pink, and then and I'm guessing this is the sister girls that are being yep. featured there. Um, yes, so this yeah. is a lipstick heart. Can you tell? Like, the oh yeah, heart the outline. This, mm-hmm. Yep, this um, comes from Tamara Cully Brown describing this that. It was a lipstick heart with our silhouettes in it, like Charlie's Angels, and we had weapons. I brought my father's machetes and BB guns for our shoot, um, mm-hmm. and it was just this like super badass image that like embodies this other approach to riot girl. Right. Mm -hmm. And this really, I think super cool approach to riot girl. So they played at that night at this club on Avenue a in New York city. And it was a packed crowd. Um, And the article says, if you bore passing witness to this night, you might've casually referred to Brown Glickstone and Coleman as riot girls. If you didn't know any better, they were girls. They were angry. They were tired of playing shitty gigs and taking a backseat to the boys. But these women would scoff at the thought of designating themselves riot girls or just plain correct you. You had riot girl, right? Brown explained. And this was a sister girls riot. That distinction was crucial. Um, And Brown in the article talked about, um, and this really, really resonated with me too. Just hearing from even my students today, like when I'm teaching classes and 
their classes like very explicitly focused on anti-racism. This is something I hear from my students of color all the time. Like, and I, I honestly don't know what to do with this. I wrestle with this. They're like, for the white kids in this class, they can come in, they can care about it. They can learn about it. They can want to talk about it, but then they get to go home and like have a day, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. this is my fucking life. Like, this mm-hmm. is what I have to live and I can't just put it on and take it off like a prop, you know? Yep, yep. So Brown says, I was just like, I have to survive. I have to defend myself. Riot Girl felt really playful and mm-hmm. I wasn't playing. Mm-hmm. I got what Riot Girl was about. I didn't think it was exclusive but it didn't feel inclusive to me. I didn't see myself or my story. And so that's why sister girl came about later on out of other women of color that I knew who were punk rock and navigated that scene and had similar feelings about it. Sister girl was my response to riot girl because it just felt super white. Mm-hmm. Um, so interesting. And now the, I, I was teasing this a little bit before that with TikTok, you know, all, how savvy and sophisticated they are on social media, <laughs> just me yeah. and my TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there are these, this like hashtag riot girl now with teenagers, mm-hmm. like talking to each other, building community, like doing a lot of this kind of, even the style apparently is called kinder whore. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> um, but there's this connection. Um, Corin Delipe is a Chicano Filipina TikToker who is really focused on um, punk rockers of color. So there is this very, um, explicit focus on, on centering, but there is a community that's like, we're not going to fucking be a white girl scene. Um, that there is also still conversations about rape culture and reproductive rights, but also, um, a lot of focus on climate disaster as part of it. And Gen Z basically saying like, we don't have any time to be apathetic. We don't have any time to not mess around. Like these are really serious things. So it's still, I think in some ways, like this ethos of like DIY connecting the same kind of age group of girls, like being interested in the same kind of aesthetics, but in a, you know, 2022 sort of way, there's Mm -hmm. also a more expansive gender identity instead of riot girl. There's a new term, riot ghoul, who Mm -hmm. are people who identify with the movement, but don't feel comfortable having the label girl. Um, and so Tamara Colley is being interviewed in this article and, and says, evolving any movement that sought to dismantle the same old patriarchal hierarchy is great. I shirk a bit at the term revival. They say nostalgia is the lowest form of engagement, but the movement was a part of rock history and its ethos is alive and well today. So if we vibe with this concept of evolution and expansion, as opposed to regurgitating or pandemizing the past, the newest expression will meet the moment. Um, and I totally recommend people check out the Linda Lindas, which are a band of Asian American and Latina teenagers who have this awesome song, racist, sexist boy, that once you listen to it, you will not be able to get it out of your head. Mm-hmm. I would also sing it for you, but you will just make fun of me. <laughs> so um, we are lady parts that is like a British Pakistani, all Muslim punk band that is out and has gotten a lot of critical acclaim. Um, so that is kind of like where this riot girl movement stands now Next time, I'm going to tell you about how this gets commercialized into girl power with mm-hmm. like white girls and Fiona Apple and Alanis Morissette and the ways that whiteness played out in like marketable girl power. Um, mm. and that has led me to like girl boss and uh-huh. girls, the HBO show and like a whole bunch of manifestations of this like white, angry 
girl that's like telling society to fuck off, but in ways that just like reinforce all sorts of bad stuff. Anyway, and that benefit capitalism. <laughs> of course, As I think everyone should like immediately go to YouTube and play the Linda Lindas, play okay. some of this music to like get it. You know, um, the sister girls like get get it on. I don't know copyright wise what we can play. So I'm just encouraging yeah. everyone to go listen, um, okay. but have a great day, everyone. Yeah. And I that was helpful. It is. Yes. I like learning about that. Excited to learn more. All right. We will do more next time. Okay. Bye everybody. Bye.